Well, the first thing I have to say to you is, Feliz Año Nuevo! Happy New Year. Happy New Year. It's a, it's a joy and a privilege to be able to celebrate the New Year with you. And uh, let me ask you something. Um, how are you feeling about 2023? Is this going to be a good year? Is the Lord going to do good things in our lives, in his church, in the world? We're going to keep praying, as we have been, that his kingdom would come, his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So it's going to be a great year by God's grace. I hope you had a, a wonderful uh, holiday season, Christmas time so far with uh, family, friends, and however you celebrate. And the Lord has been good and faithful to us in a lot of different ways. And uh, the Lord has confirmed the word that the Lord laid on my heart already through several things, uh, especially uh, the opening scripture and other things the Lord has shared. But um, I'm really excited to have the privilege of opening the Lord's word with you this morning. And we're going to be looking chiefly at 1 Timothy chapter 3 and talking about the, the topic of the mystery of godliness. 1 Timothy chapter 3, the mystery of godliness. Um, and uh, you'll see how that fits into what the Lord has been saying already. But if you were here last, uh, I was going to say Sunday, last Christmas Eve, uh, not only did we get, get a chance to sing some carols and worship the Lord together, but we heard an excellent message uh, about Jesus' first advent, uh, Jesus' coming, and particularly how the things that Jesus did and the things that happened around the time of his birth were fulfillments of things that the Lord spoke through the prophets long ago. And uh, we heard in, in Luke chapter 1 and particularly Matthew uh, chapter 1 uh, some of the, the, the ways in which uh, Jesus is coming and first advent, his first appearing, uh, fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. Uh, one of which, for example, in, in Matthew 1, 23, I think it is, um, where um, it says, um, this was spoken, this, this came about to fulfill what was spoken of through the prophet, saying, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a child, bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel, which is translated to mean God with us. What an extraordinary statement that God would come down and live his life with us. And the whole Gospel of Matthew, it starts in chapter 1, goes all the way to the very end of Matthew, chapter 28. And Dave reminded us that one of the vast, very last promises that Jesus gave um, is, um, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The, the palpable presence of the Lord in our lives, every moment and every day to the very end of the age. And, and that's what we, we celebrate when we celebrate Jesus' first coming, his first appearing his first advent. So we've been reading together uh, as a congregation uh, some of the epistles of Paul, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, and we're in 2nd Timothy this, this week. But uh, in, first, in, in Thessalonians particularly, the Apostle Paul shifts the focus a little bit away from Jesus's first coming, his first appearing, his first advent, and he gives them some specific instructions about his second coming, his second appearing. Partly it seems as though he was trying to overcome some misconceptions and maybe false teachings that they had heard and to kind of give them some instruction about what the second coming of the Lord was to be like and what they should expect. And, the, and you know, the church in Thessalonica needed this because they had not yet had an opportunity to attend the excellent eschatology classes that we've been having on Wednesday evenings. So uh, Paul gave them a little bit of a foretaste of that uh, in First and Second Thessalonians. So now we're in First and Second Timothy, and uh, the focus is a little different in these letters of Paul. Uh, and, and, and what Paul is doing in these uh, epistles is instructing Timothy about, as he puts it, how one should conduct himself in the household of God. And uh, he's giving him um, some, some in, in, input about uh, many things that, that Paul expected Timothy, his true child in the faith, his young disciple, the man in whom, in whom he had put in charge of some of the churches, what he expected him to do. And a key theme in, in, in uh, Timothy, as in lots of the scripture, is the theme of stewardship. Stewardship. Paul said that, uh, he, he himself was a steward, and he was entrusting to Timothy 
stewardship. And I'd like to look at, look at a verse, before we get to 1 Timothy 3, a couple of verses, but one is in 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 4. And uh, you can follow along or uh, turn in your Bible as the Lord leads you, but um, 1 Timothy chapter, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Get there. He's telling uh, Timothy how um, Christian ministry should be perceived. And I think not only Christian ministry, but all of us, because we are all called to be servants and uh, ministers in the kingdom of God. And he says in 1 first, in Corinthians 4, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. One be found trustworthy. The most important qualification of being a steward, and all of us are stewards, as we'll see, the most important qualification is not that you be uh, talented or intelligent or good-looking uh, or having a charming personality. The most important qualification of stewardship is trustworthiness, Paul says. And that's what I'm, why I'm writing to you, Timothy. I want you to, prove, to you to prove that you're trustworthy uh, for the stewardship that has been entrusted to you. Uh, stewardship, a key theme, of course, um, in a lot of the parables of the Lord Jesus. Um, a king goes away to receive a kingdom, and he returns. But while he's gone, he entrusts the kingdom to stewards, those who are in charge, a, a vineyard owner. Go, rents out his vineyard to vine growers. But during the time that he's gone, he expects them to, pr to produce the, pr the fruits of the vine and to show the, the fruits of their stewardship. A master leaves servants in charge of his household, and, but he expects them to give an account when he comes back. Stewardship. Paul clearly saw himself as a steward. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11, uh, Paul says, um, to me, I have been entrusted um, the, the, by the, the, the mysteries of the glorious God, the, the mysteries of the gospel by, by the blessed God. And, and he says in 1 Timothy 6 to, to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, 20, I think it is, he says, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Guard what's been entrusted to you. And this is a question I'd like to ask you this morning. How do you view yourself as you go through your Christian life, as you walk on God's green earth? What are you doing? What are you here for? Are you here just to pursue your own goals and to satisfy uh, the, the objectives that you've laid out for your life? Or do you see yourself as a steward? There will come a day when we will be giving an account to the Lord. One, in one of the parables that Jesus tells, uh, one of the servants comes to the master when it's time to give an accounting. And he says, here, master, here are the five minas you entrusted to me. I see I've made five minas more. And he says to him, well done, good and faithful servant. There's also uh, some, some punishment and a lack of praise and a lack of reward for the stewards who acted wickedly and were, and were wicked, lazy servants. And uh, the Lord is serious about stewardship. And, and that's one of the key things here uh, in First Timothy and in, in, in so many of the parables of Jesus also. The most precious mystery that has been entrusted to us as stewards of the Lord is the mystery of the gospel. We've been talking in our men's ministry about a particular verse in First Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. Uh, where Paul says this to Timothy, the things you've seen in me or the things you've heard from me entrust to faith, faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There's a, there's a, a succession to stewardship. Um, Paul was a steward. He entrusts his stewardship to Timothy. Timothy entrusts those to faithful people who will be able to pass those on. And the succession goes all the way down to you and me through the centuries, brothers and sisters. We have also been... Uh, given a mystery and entrust it because we're, mystery, we're, we're stewards of the mysteries of God. And, and the greatest mystery is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That's the one that's the most critical and the most crucial. 
Jesus revealed in the flesh. We're going to read together 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting with verse 16. This is actually the verse that the service was opened with this morning. So please take a minute if, and turn with me, if you haven't already, to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're toward the very end of the chapter. Paul says this to Timothy, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who is revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Paul is introducing a new term here, and it's the mystery of godliness. What is the mystery of godliness? That's the wrong question. The right question is, who is the mystery of godliness? Because the answer is a person. The answer is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the mystery of godliness. He is the message that is proclaimed and that has been entrusted to us as his stewards. He is the mystery of godliness. It's a person, it's him. Rever revealed first at Jesus' first advent, his first coming, his first appearing that Dave was sharing with us about on Christmas Eve, that time when Jesus appeared in the flesh. He was born of a, of a virgin, God with us, Emmanuel. In humility, almost in secret, in simplicity, in gentleness, his second appearing will be a further revelation of the mystery of godliness. When he comes again, it's gonna be in power and glory and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. That'll be a fuller and a different kind of a, of a revelation of the mystery of godliness. I'd like to, to take a look at each of these um, six points about the mystery of godliness here to, with you in 1 uh, Timothy chapter 3. Um, the way Paul describes this, I think, is really significant. In the beginning of uh, verse 16, he calls this our common confession. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. Other translations translate that different ways. I believe that the word that's used uh, in the translation I'm reading for confession is the word homologia, probably mispronouncing it, but it means to say the same thing, to have the same word. We use the word confession. Our confession is that which we say together, that which you and I and other believers all around the world and all throughout human history, the things that we say together, our common confession. And you know, what you say is very important. Don't use idle words. What you say really matters because the Lord is listening, the devil is listening, the people around you are listening, and you yourself listen to what you say. And it's important to, sit, to speak out the mystery of godliness our common confession, we can, the things that we say together. Paul says in Romans 10, with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. And this is the mystery, the confession of godliness. There are six salient points in the mystery of godliness. The Lord Jesus, he who is revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. These are the six salients. These are the things that we confess that we believe together. And our confession, our common confession as believers links us with all believers throughout the centuries and all over the world and it gives us a common identity, a common purpose. It tells us who we are. Many of us here are citizens of the United States of America. Did you know that we have a common confession? We actually have a couple of documents 
that together make up our common confession. One of them starts like this. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to sever the political ties that bind it with another people, it's, it's incumbent upon them to declare the reasons for this severance. What is that called? Anybody know? Thank you. That's the Declaration of Independence. You may have heard some other familiar words from that declaration. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created and equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. It's those words and others in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution that define who we are, we who are citizens of the United States. But we have a higher citizenship. We have a confession that precedes those documents, noble though they are. And we have a citizenship that goes back to all eternity, past and future. And that is, we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So as, as great as the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence are, they pale in comparison with the, with the common confession we have, which is the mystery of godliness. Six salient points here. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the term salient, uh, but these are, a salient, these are salient points in our confession of godliness. A salient is originally a military term and uh, what a salient is, is when uh, an invading army advances into enemy territory, that point at which they stop and, and, and defend and fortify is called a salient. And uh, salients are very important because they become the staging point for the rest of the invasion. And um, uh, for example, um, the most probably famous salient in World War II was called the Battle of the Bulge. And uh, it was toward the end of World War II when uh, Hitler broke out of the encirclement by Allied armies. And uh, he made a salient in Belgium. And he found out how difficult it is to defend a salient at a point uh, that's surrounded by hostile enemy territory. The salients that we have to defend are also important and critical in the advancement of the kingdom of God and uh, we need to, to learn to defend them and to be willing to sacrifice and pay a cost uh, to defend the salience. And there are six of them. And the first is this, Jesus Christ, the one in whom salvation is offered to all mankind, Jesus Christ revealed in the flesh, revealed in the flesh. That's what we've been celebrating during the first Advent and Dave was preaching on so well last Sunday, Jesus revealed in the flesh. Did you know that God likes physical stuff? He likes matter. When Jesus came to earth, he didn't hover like a disembodied ghost over our heads, sort of drifting up there in the ether. A virgin gave birth to a child. She laid him in a, wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger. God was revealed in the flesh. The great thing about a mystery, you know, the mystery of godliness, is not that it's kept secret, but to the point at which it is revealed. And I don't know if you like mysteries, if you've ever read a mystery novel or seen a mystery on TV. We actually watched one with some family uh, last night, a mystery movie on TV. But um, how would you feel if you were reading a mystery or seeing a, a mystery on TV or a movie or a TV show and um, you get to the end and, you know, the, the writer has laid out for you all the clues and uh, given you a, a, a list of suspects and then you get to the end of the mystery and, and the writer says, oh, by the way, I, I'm not going to tell you who did it. So tough luck, you know, that would be a little bit unsatisfying, a little bit unfulfilling, but God is not like that, you know. He reveals his mystery, he reveals it in the flesh. The Lord has spilled the beans. He has nothing to hide. And I'm, literally, the Lord has nothing up his sleeve. There's a powerful verse in Isaiah 52, Isaiah 52.10. I don't know if you want to look at it or remember it, but it says in Isaiah 52.10 an amazing thing. It says, the Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations so that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. 
That's what happened when Jesus was revealed in the flesh. The Lord bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations so that everyone could see the, the salvation of our God. There's some religions that teach that uh, spirit is good and that matter is bad. That's not Christianity. Jesus came in a body. The Lord loves physical things. He loves material things that he made them. How do I know that? Why does food taste so good? Don't you think about your favorite dish? It's, it's delicious. Why is it that when you go out on a, on a dark night uh, and you look up at the stars, they just look so resplendent and so magnificent? God loves physical stuff. He made it. Why is it that when the Lord calls us to obey him and follow him in discipleship, he also tells us to get wet? You know, don't forget to hold your nose when they dunk you under the water so you don't drown. The sacraments. Why is it that when the Lord invites us to have fellowship with him as, as he did today, he makes us eat physical stuff, you know, bread and wine, his body and his blood, because the Lord likes matter. He likes, he was revealed in the flesh. There's some beautiful words that were written several centuries, a couple of centuries ago, by a hymn writer named Charles Wesley. And a lot of them have sung these, a lot of us have sung these words recently. Wesley said, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to appear, Jesus, our Emmanuel here. Wesley didn't think that idea up by himself. First revealed to us in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, the 14th verse, John 1, 14. You know, I don't know if you're like me, but I sometimes wish that the script, some scriptures were not quite so familiar to us because they, sometimes they dull in our hearing. The scriptures don't dull, but we, get, we feel like we're familiar with them. But just, just for a second, play a game with me. Let's pretend that you have never heard these words before. John chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory like the only begotten of the Father, full of grace, full of truth. The most, one of the most astounding statements ever made to men and women. The apostles were so thrilled by this. They were just filled with, the, with, a, with a breathlessness and a joy and a zeal as they brought this message and broke it into the world. And, and, and turn with, you, with me, if you have a minute, to 1 John chapter 1, the first letter of John, the first chapter. 1 John chapter 1. You know, I just have a sense that we take these things far too much for granted. We're not stunned and, and amazed. And uh, in 1 John chapter 1, you know, I, I have the feeling that John runs up to me and grabs me by the shoulders and shakes me and said, listen, I've got something really important to tell you. Whatever you're doing, stop doing it and listen to this message. And, and he doesn't even have an introduction to this letter. He just dives right in, 1 John chapter 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked on and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and which was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That's all one big sentence. He doesn't even pause for a breath. He just blurts it out. Incredible. Because the, 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 the apostles were filled and, and, and dynamized and motivated by the, by the joy and the power of this really, really simple message. Jesus was revealed in the flesh. The second salient point is this. He was vindicated in the spirit. Back to 1 Timothy 
chapter 3, verse 16. He was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the Spirit. Jesus was justified by the Spirit. He was vouched for by the Spirit. His entire ministry drenched in the Holy Spirit of God. And we know that um, at Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit descended like a dove upon him, rested on him, remained with him. And at every point in Jesus's ministry, the Holy Spirit was dramatically powerful and active and evident. One of the very first things that Jesus did in his ministry is he was impelled by the Spirit to go out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And uh, he was moved throughout his ministry by the Holy Spirit. Many, many times the gospel rec writers record for us that the Spirit of the Lord, um, the Spirit was present to perform healings and so many times. And of course, at the resurrection, uh, before the resurrection, when Jesus was laid in a tomb, he was, he was brought to life by the Holy Spirit, Paul tells us in, in Romans chapter 8. Everything that he did, everything that he was, vindicated by the Holy Spirit. John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1, verse 32. Please flip with me there to John chapter 1, verse 32, because probably the most eloquent testimony of the fact the Lord Jesus was vindicated by the Holy Spirit. John chapter 1, verse 32. You know, when, you, when John the Baptist came, they asked him all kinds of questions. They said, uh, so who are you? So we can give an account to those who sent us. And, and they said, are you the, the Christ? And he said, he said, I am not. He said, in fact, I'm not even worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. Are you Elijah? Who are you? And he said he was the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Uh, just skipping ahead, so much good here, but skipping ahead to verse 32. John says, John testifies, and he says, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon Jesus. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Jesus not only bore the Holy Spirit, and was he present in every moment of his ministry, but he overflowed with the Holy Spirit, and he baptizes us who follow him also with the Holy Spirit. Jesus, vindicated by the Spirit. The third salient point is this. He was seen by angels. Jesus was seen by angels. You know, we think of Jesus as he's, after his birth as being uh, seen by shepherds and the shepherds you know said let's 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 hurry up and go to bethlehem and see this thing that the lord has made known to us and by seen by magi as they came from afar and followed the star but you know i sort of have the feeling that the angels wanted to see him too that baby elbowing each other out of the way and saying it's my turn give me a chance i want to look at jesus too he was seen by angels angels present uh with him of course announcing his birth uh to to Zacharias, to Mary, Gabriel, and, and many, many other in angelic things about the ministry of the Lord Jesus. Uh, at, the, at, at, the, at, the, at key points in his earthly ministry, he was seen by angels. He was visited by angels. Um, and after, his, after he had fasted 40 days in the wilderness and become hungry, the devil came and tempted him. And after he dealt with the devil, it says that angels came to him and ministered to him. Angels were there to minister to him. Of course, perhaps the critical juncture of all in Jesus's ministry, when he fell down in agonized prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane about whether or not the Father would let the cup pass from him. And it says that after, as he was in his agony, an angel appeared to him and ministered to him. Angels beholding Jesus. In John chapter 1, Jesus has this amazing conversation with a guy named Nathaniel. And he's, he's marveling at Nathaniel's faith. He's pleased with Nathaniel's, Nathaniel's faith. And he says to Nathaniel, because I said I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. Truly I say to you that you will see the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. I'm Jacob's ladder, Jesus said. The angels of God 
ascending and descending upon me. Those majestic beings that, that cross the uh, transition line, that cross the intersection between heaven and earth, uh, between the supernatural and the natural. Jesus aware of them, present in his life and ministry at every point. Let me ask you something. Have you ever seen an angel? Anybody here? I see one person, probably some others I have, that I can't see. There's there are two times that I know of personally that I've seen angels uh, that I know of, because there are probably lots and lots of times, probably countless times, that the angels have, have ministered uh, to us. You know who they are, don't you? The, the writer to the Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 1.14, are they not ministering spirits sent out to render service to those who are the heirs of salvation? Isn't that incredible? That the angels are sent out to, to serve us, we who are the heirs of salvation. Angels part of our, our lives, especially part of the Lord Jesus' life. The fourth salient point, proclaimed among the nations. The mystery of godliness, the Lord Jesus Christ, proclaimed among the nations. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 16, the mystery which has been hidden from ages past, but now has been proclaimed, now has been manifested to the world. He was proclaimed among the nations. Luke chapter 16, I'd like to ask you to turn with me to this one, if you will. Luke, I think I got the passage wrong. I think, no, I'm sorry, I think it's Luke chapter 24. Luke 24, toward the, toward the end of the chapter, this is going to be verse 47, once I get there in my Kindle. He's been, uh, this is one of Jesus' post-resurrection conversations with the disciples, and he was explaining to them how the Son of Man will suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. And verse 47 of Luke 24, he says, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. This is the proclamation of the gospel message, proclaimed to all the nations. Israel alone can't contain this. This is not just for the sons of Israel, but this is for all the nations. And, and Paul talks about this proclamation also in, in Colossians chapter 1. And I want to read a couple of verses there also. Flipping around a little bit, hope you don't mind. Colossians chapter 1, this is toward the end of Colossians 1. So uh, Colossians chapter 1, again, so much here, but just starting in verse 25, Colossians 1.25. Of this church, Paul says, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God. Remember, we talked about the stewardship that Paul passed along to Timothy. The stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That, that, that is the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations. Now has been manifested to his saints. Which, which God has made known to us, the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, Christ in you, the hope of glory, and we proclaim him, the proclamation of the message, the mystery of godliness. This is the mystery that changes the world. This is the mystery that uh, was entrusted as a steward to Paul and Paul to Timothy, and in succession, all the way down to you and me, the mystery that's proclaimed among the nations. The fifth salient point is this. He, the mystery of godliness, the Lord Jesus, believed on in the world. We can keep looking back at 1 Timothy 3.16, the, the sixth salient point, Jesus believed on in the world. Not only was he seen by angels, not only was he vindicated by the Spirit, not only was he proclaimed, but he was believed on. He made dramatic personal changes in the lives of girls and boys, men and women. He was believed on in the world. Inestimable impact. When I was a kid, like a lot of kids, I loved dinosaurs. 
Any of you like dinosaurs when you were a kid? Still like dinosaurs? See a couple of people nodding and waving their hands. You know, when I was, when I was younger, uh, paleontologists were still saying that they didn't really know. There are lots of competing theories about why the dinosaurs disappeared, why they went extinct. But since then, in the recent decades, they've, they've come to more certainty about it. And most paleontologists now agree that there was a huge asteroid that crashed into the Earth uh, that many millennia ago. And it dramatically changed, almost instantaneously, the climate of the Earth. It became darker, it became a lot colder, and uh, the, the dinosaurs couldn't withstand it and they died out, and probably hundreds, maybe thousands of other species also died out with them. Gigantic impact. The impact of that asteroid was, was slight, scant, compared to the impact of the gospel in the world, because the gospel was believed on in the world. You know, in the book of Acts, Luke records that um, some men brought some accusations against the apostles, and they said, we don't want them here. These are the men who have turned the world upside down. They might just as easily have said, we don't, these are the men who have turned the world right side up. Because the gospel is upside down. The world is upside down until the gospel comes. It's only the gospel that turns things right side up and, and helps us to see clearly and truly, like C.S. Lewis said, um, I believe in the sun, I believe in the gospel, I guess I believe that the sun is risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. It's, the, it's believing in the gospel. We've, we're, we've, we read just recently 2 Thessalonians, and in 2 Thessalonians 1.10, 2 Thessalonians 1.10, Paul says that um, the gospel, will, that when Jesus returns, his second advent, second appearing, second coming, he will be marveled at among those who have believed. Those who accepted Christ uh, at the time of his first coming, at his second coming, they will, they will marvel at him, him in whom they have believed. Hallelujah. Believed on in the world. There's really a key reason why the gospel has to be proclaimed why the mystery of the steward, the stewardship of the mystery has been entrusted to us. And the Apostle John tells us what the reason is at the end of his book, at the end of, of John, the Gospel of John, in, in uh, chapter 20, verse 31. In John 20, 31, Jesus says these, uh, John says, you know, the, I've recorded some of the things that Jesus did, but there are many other things that he did that have not been recorded in this book. But these have been written, why? so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and believing you may have life in his name. This is the, what, what we believe. This is the creed that we confess. This is the, what, what changes all the world. When I was a kid, I used to go with my uh, grandmother to uh, a beautiful old Episcopalian church called St. Martin's in Radnor, Pennsylvania. And I, I loved going with her to that church beautiful mahogany and old stone and stained glass and sweet-smelling incense. And at that church, we would confess together certain things. There were certain creeds that we would repeat. The Apostles' Creed is one, the Nicene Creed. Many of you may be familiar with them. The thing that I always thought was a little weird um, is that the people that were repeating these creeds, some were reading them, some were reciting them by, by memory, they didn't, they seemed to, not be dramatically changed by what they were saying. It was almost like they were kind of waiting to be finished or like they were falling asleep as they were saying them. Maybe it's the dullness of repetition, I'm not sure. But, but, but this creed, this credo, uh, this confession that we believe, this is not dull. This is not boring. You don't fall asleep. This is stuff that gives you life. The Apostle John says, believing you'll have life in his name. The sixth salient point, 1 Timothy 3.16. Remember, Jesus revealed in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and the final point, the final salient, he was taken up in glory. Jesus taken up in glory. 
This is an historical event recorded, of course, in all four of the, by all four of the gospel writers. The church often uses a, a non-biblical term to describe it. It's called the ascension. Many of you have heard the term the ascension. Did you ever have an experience when you were trying to share the gospel with someone? Like I have had a couple of times, and you talk about Jesus and you say, you know, Jesus died for you, Jesus paid for your sins, you have to believe in Jesus. I'm encouraging you to receive Jesus into your heart, make him your Lord and Savior. And they turn to you and they say, Jesus, Jesus, what's all this Jesus stuff? I don't even see him, where is he? You know, they have a point. He's not here in a physical body. He is not here. The angel said that when the, when the women were looking for him after the resurrection. Why are you seeking the living one among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. He's not here. He has ascended. And the unbelievers are right when they say, hey, tell me to believe in Jesus. I don't see him. He ain't around. It's because he ascended into heaven. Turn with me to, to Mark chapter 16, if you will. Toward the end of the gospel of Mark, let's look at Mark's description of this historical event. Where are we? Mark 16, 19. Jesus had again been instructing his disciples after his resurrection about how he expected them to lay their hands on the sick and they would recover, among other things. And then 19, Mark 16, 19. So then when the, when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. Jesus received up into heaven, sat down at the right hand of God. The disciples went out. The Lord worked with them confirmed the word which the design, which with the, by the signs that followed. Now, wait a second, Mark. I don't think I get it. First, you tell me that Jesus ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. In the very next breath, you're telling me he went out with the disciples and confirmed the word with the, wines that, with the signs that followed. So which is it? The answer is yes. The miracle here implied is the presence of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus working with his, his disciples even after ascending into heaven. The ascension, the culmination of Jesus's first ministry, his first appearing, his first advent, this is the final thing that happens in Jesus's first advent. It points undeniably, irrevocably toward his second coming. I'd like to read one more account of the ascension with you, and it's the, that of the, of the gospel writer Luke. So please turn with me, if you will, uh, to Acts chapter 1. Okay, something's going wrong with my Kindle again. In Acts chapter 1, Luke does a little bit of his explaining to Theophilus, his audience. And he says, he, there's two accounts that I wrote. The first account, I composed Theophilus, Acts 1.1, was about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up into heaven. That's his ascension, which we've alluded to, the day when Jesus was taken up into heaven. Now, the second account is the book of Acts. Um, and you, we know that uh, here in, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, a verse that is quoted a lot, uh, when Jesus said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, Acts 1, 8, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the remotest part of the earth. Then Acts, verse, Acts chapter 1, verse 9, after Jesus has said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. 
Where did these guys come from? They were, we know that they were angels dressed in white. Do you ever wonder why, I'm going to get back to the verse in a minute, but do you ever wonder why angels always dress in white, apparently? Did you know that angels are allowed to wear white even after Labor Day? I just have a notion that the, re the reason angels dress in white is that it says something to us about the purity of heaven, about virtue, about the resplendence of heaven, the transparency of heaven. These two guys suddenly appeared. These guys weren't here before. These two men dressed in white as we were gazing, we the disciples, watching Jesus go into heaven. And this is what they said, verse 11. They, they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you in heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. You've seen him come, go, you're gonna see him come. Jesus's first coming points directly like a huge arrow down the corridors of time to his second coming. Jesus worked hard to try to get the disciples to understand that he was gonna go away. And to me, one of the most beautiful passages of scripture along these lines is, is uh, John chapter 16. And I wanna look, look at a verse with you in John chapter 16. It's actually verse 16. So if you would turn with me, John 16, 16. Jesus says at one point, not, not verse 16, but in John 16, he says to them, um, I've told you that I'm going away and sorrow has filled your heart. It's actually to your advantage that I go away because if I don't go away, the Holy Spirit won't come. But nevertheless, it was hard news for them. John 16, verse 16. A little while and you will no longer see me. And again a little while and you will see me. So the disciples were debating with each other and deliberating. What's he talking about a little while? What does this mean? You know, a lot of times they didn't understand what he said. Unlike us, I, I always understand what Jesus says to me, don't you? But they were a little dumb, like us. And uh, they were deliberating. What's he talking about? A little while, we'll no longer see him. A little, again, a little while, we'll see him. What does this mean? And Jesus knew that they were deliberating amongst themselves. And he said, it's like, a, it's like when a, um, he said, you'll weep and lament, the world will rejoice. You'll be sorrowful, your sorrow will be turned into joy. He said, it's like when a woman is in labor, she has travail, but then when the, when the child is born, she remembers her anguish no longer for joy that a child has been born into the, into the world. You and I are living in a period right now that Jesus called a little while. That stretch of time between Jesus' ascension and his return until the time that the angels promised him, you'll see him coming back just the way you saw him go. Now, is, is Jesus being deliberately vague about this? Yeah. Probably, yeah. I, I think so. I agree with Eric. He is being deliberately vague. And, and you know, clearly Jesus has a little bit of a different conception of time than I do, because I think it's been more than a little while. I think it's been a big while uh, since Jesus has been gone. But maybe in the scale of eternity, maybe it's just a little while. And uh, Jesus expected us to take it hard. He said, you'll have grief. I'm at verse 22 now, John 16. You'll have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. When you've been with friends and family, like maybe you were over the holidays, and you have to leave, like uh, Karen's brother and his daughter were visiting with us, and we saw them go out to the car and leave and go back to Washington to see this morning. But you know you're gonna, we know we're going to see them again, so we don't say goodbye, farewell. We, well, what, what, do you, what do we say? See you later. Jesus said to us, see you later. See you later. 
Maybe the most beautiful five words, one of the, one of the most beautiful promises that our ears have ever heard are, the, heard are these. I will see you again. And your heart will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. And I say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. That's what we live for. The joy that will, no one can take away from us when we see Jesus again. And it's going to seem like a little while. Doesn't seem, may seem like a long time now. But it's a little while, it's a little while according to what Jesus said. The six salience that can that together compose the mystery of godliness these things have been entrusted to you and to me paul says let a man regard us in this manner we're servants of christ we're stewards of the mysteries of god the mysteries of godliness it's the lord jesus he was revealed that gives meaning and joy and purpose and power to our lives and helps us to understand uh, the course of human history, eternity past, where we are now in the present, eternity future. It's all wrapped up in the mystery of godliness. And it's, it's not a doctrine. It's not a code of conduct. It's not, you know, some selfish individual pursuit of my own spirituality, not a list of rules and regulations, not, not just a credo, not just a creed. It's a person. It's the Lord Jesus. It's a master who has entrusted to his stewards responsibilities. Are we being trustworthy? Paul said to Timothy, it's required of a, of a steward that he be found trustworthy. Lord Jesus, we confess you. Together, Lord, we say your name. We acknowledge the mystery of godliness. It's you. Thank you for revealing that to us. Thank you, Father, for bearing your holy arm in the sight of all the nations so that all the ends of the earth could see the salvation that you prepared in the Lord Jesus. When that, that virgin gave birth to a child and wrapped him in cloths and put him in a manger, and when the Son of Man will return on the clouds of heaven with great power and glory, and every eye will see him. Jesus, thank you for promising us that we will see you again. Thank you for the joy that's there. Lord, help us to be found to be trustworthy stewards of the, the mystery that, that Paul reminded Timothy of.